0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week. This week, Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, is sitting in for Linda Chavez, And our special guest is Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, who joins us to discuss the latest report on federal spending and debt from the Congressional Budget Office. Welcome, one and all. Maya, first of all, God bless you (laughs) for making fiscal sanity your life's work, but uh, it seems like it's getting worse and worse. So the CBO reports that the deficit will reach 1%, $1.02 $1.02 in 2020, a huge increase, uh, and this is despite an expanding economy, uh, which usually causes deficits to decline. So first question is, uh, is the CBO estimate actually too optimistic? Uh, it, autom- it assumes, for example, that the 2017 tax cuts will be permitted to expire, which is doubtful. Um, And uh, and it doesn't, uh, and it projects slower growth over the next decade. So it could be even worse. What what's your feeling about this?
1: Well, first, thanks. It's nice to be with you. And uh, you are right. It is a long, hard sort of haul trying to push for fiscal responsibility. And it seems like it has only been getting more difficult as the political environment has been getting more broken. Um, And yeah, this this Congressional Budget Office report that just came out really is a huge, huge warning sign. And the reason I say that is never before in the history of this country have we had budget deficits that were this large when the economy was doing so well. We had trillion-dollar deficits once before during the huge downturn in 2008, Mm -hmm. but you expect your deficit to grow when the economy is in recession, and you expect it to shrink and even turn into a surplus when you're in a period of expansion.
0: Can we we spell that out just a a little bit? Because there are a lot of people in the audience who I suspect, like me, are not experts on Budgets and, and you can be come uh, <laughs> to the committee for a responsible federal budget. <laughs> but so in a in a recession, um, the government is taking in fewer receipts from taxes uh, because the economy has slowed down, right? And it's spending more money to uh, in a countercyclical fashion to goose the economy. So that's why you expect higher deficits during a downturn, right? That's
1: exactly right. So people okay. always think, oh, you run a, a, a fiscally responsible group. You care about balance balanced budgets. And it's not balanced budgets at all, per se. There's nothing magic about balance. And in fact, there's times that you want to borrow and there's times that you don't want to borrow. And the problem is we borrow at all times these days. But when the economy turns down, just like you said, both you have something called automatic stabilizers, but parts of the tax and the spending code bring in less money and spend more money in a recession. That makes your deficit bigger. And then you also may have stimulus packages where you choose to spend more to make up for the demand of the lower the the poor economy that is not what's happening now we are in our 11th year of an economic recovery which is in fact a record and yet our budget deficit is growing every single year and to hit trillion dollar deficits that are very significant as the share of the economy when the economy is this strong is just nothing other than utter recklessness and i think it reflects just how broken the political system is right now where Basically, you have no members of contrast towards Congress, and certainly not the president, who are displaying any interest in paying for anything. So any policies that take place right now, put straight on the national credit card bill. And that is what is uh, pushing these numbers up so far.
0: So when your people go to the Hill and talk to members about this, um, what kinds of things are you hearing from them?
1: There is so much finger pointing. There is so much finger pointing. And you see it at the hearings as well, where... It's always I mean, it's pretty clear what each side will say, but Republicans will say, Democrats, you've been ignoring these huge the huge growth in spending entitlement programs, our health care and our retirement programs. And it's true. Those programs are growing faster than the economy. Their trust funds are facing insolvency, and we need to make changes to shore them up. What's the year they're expected to reach insolvency? Early Early 2030s is when Social Security, you're going to have automatic across-the-board benefit cuts if we don't make changes in advance of that. And you can't wait till the last minute. That That leaves you with very few reasonable choices. We should have made these changes, frankly, 10 years ago. And then on the other side, you have Democrats saying, you just passed a huge $2 trillion tax cut without offsetting any of the costs um, or that added $2 trillion to the national debt. And that's also true. So you have both sides blaming each other. You have no looking in the mirror of sort of how your own not paying for your priorities and ignoring the challenges in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and our tax system are all allowing this to grow. And right now, you have a situation where the debt is actually growing faster than the entire economy. And that, by definition, is unsustainable.
2: Uh, Isn't there a deeper problem than mutual finger pointing? Uh, What I'm picking up, but you do this 24-7, so correct me if I'm wrong, is that at an intellectual or theoretical level, Both political parties have come to the conclusion that deficits don't.
1: free lunch economics, and there's all sorts of models backing it up right now, and and fake phony models. So, right, so during the tax cut debate, you heard so many people claiming tax cuts were going to pay for themselves. That should have been debunked ages ago. They're still saying it. Yeah, you still hear people saying it. And honestly, I can't tell which people believe it and just don't understand economics and which people aren't telling the truth. But tax cuts do not pay for themselves, even the best tax cuts, which do grow the economy. They just don't grow the economy nearly enough to pay for themselves. Maybe they cover 20% of the cost, give or take. And then on the other side, I think what Bill is talking about rightly, is there's this whole new theory, MMT, which is kind of the craziest don't worry about deficit spending at all. You can just uh, borrow as much as you want until you see inflation. Then Congress will raise taxes to stop the inflation. And (laughs) it makes no sense on so many fronts. But the first is the idea of taking the decision-making to control inflation out of the Fed which is a highly functioning organization, and putting it into Congress, which actually closes itself down and fails to pass budgets, is a really weak start to all of this. And then thinking that Congress would come together and raise taxes suddenly when there's inflation, it just isn't going to happen that way. But the bottom line is what Bill's saying is right, which is everybody is looking for a free lunch. There's all sorts of justifications that are being thrown out to do it. And nobody wants to do what, what deficit reduction really is about, which is making hard choices putting policy over politics, focusing on the long term instead of just the immediate, and being willing to compromise. And those are the things you actually need to run the government overall. And we've kind of lost all of them from what I can see. What about
0: the argument um, that you sometimes hear that, look, um, you deficit hawks, we've been hearing warnings from you for decades about that we were about to become Greece or that inflation was going to be raging out of control because of our Deficit spending, none of that happened. Um, you guys are just Cassandra's. Well, no, not Cassandra's, because she was right. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're right too. <laughs> but you guys are, are, are chicken littles and yeah. you're too frightened, and, and the, the terrible consequences you've warned about have never happened. So maybe, maybe we can just spend to our heart's content.
1: Yeah, I mean all of those stories would be wonderful if they were true. Usually usually it is true that if something sounds too good to be true, it is. You cannot borrow your way to prosperity. But what's happened here, of course, is that we actually are worse off because of budget deficits. It's just not in ways that people see immediately. So there was a great economist, Charlie Schultz, who used to say that budget deficits are like the termites in the basement. And they are. They eat away at the foundation of our economy. And if we hadn't been running budget deficits for all the past years when we did. Our standard of living would be much higher today. We would all be making more in wages and income. And our economic growth might well be higher than it is today. I will say a big, big stumbling block in economic growth is demographics, certainly going forward, the aging of the population. But having a huge debt load, as we do, leaves us vulnerable and it can can steep down growth and it pushes out investment. Um, And then finally, when we hit that next recession, we're just talking about how you need to borrow during recessions. Our deficit, our debt is twice as high relative to the economy as it was when we went to the downturn of 2008. That means both the Fed and the federal government will have the toolboxes of monetary policy and fiscal policy depleted when the next recession hits. So that means it's going to be that much more painful. But you never feel it. You never say like, oh, the deficit is, you know, hitting me in the face painfully and economically today. It's lost opportunities. And it's, it's the vulnerabilities that we have going forward on the national security front on an economic front, in terms of our standard of living, in terms of what things we might want to be doing, like a new social contract for a technology economy, these kinds of things we should be thinking about, we've already overcommitted our resources. So it's lost opportunities as well.
0: And don't we also
1: pay an opportunity cost in the form of the interest on the debt? Single biggest growth in the federal budget is interest payments on the national debt. I don't care if you're a small government conservative, big government progressive, putting the money on interest payments, 40% of which go out of our economy into other countries because we borrow 40% of our deficit financing from abroad, Um, in fact, from countries that we're not politically aligned with in many cases. So interest is really just the waste that nobody should be wanting our money spent on. Right.
0: It's money that's not going to bridges and schools and many other things, fighting diseases or what, you know, whatever other priorities we
1: might want to address. Yeah, no, we're feeling resource constrained in a lot of ways. And part of that has to do with that we pre-committed so so much funding. So much of our money goes to decisions that were made decades ago. And so much is paying the interest Younger generation, obviously, when you're young, you don't think about these things. You don't think you're going to get Social Security. You don't care. You don't worry about the budget deficit. But the amount of responsibility and burden we are putting onto them is absolutely unconscionable. It's the opposite of what our deal is supposed to be, which is each generation leaves the economy stronger for the next.
3: What do you make, you mentioned the Fed, of the way that President Trump has kind of been haranguing Jerome Powell about continuing to lower interest rates in this moment?
1: Yeah, I think that actually goes to the point of how dangerous it is to have an assault on independent institutions. I think in this moment where we are desperately in trouble because of the loss of truth and trust, and those are the undergirdings of democracy, really, to have the independent institutions, you've got the Federal Reserve Board, and people are going to have opinions about interest rates, but you don't try to bully interest people to change interest rates. You want that to be done through expertise. Um, But you've (coughs) got the Federal Reserve Board, you've got the Congressional Budget Office, other independent institutions like that, I think it's critical that we use them because we need starting points and policies and numbers that we all agree are the truth, then we can disagree from there. But the bullying, um, it worries me that the loss of, ensuing loss of truth, trust that comes from that, does real damage.
0: Damon, did you have a question? If not, I do.
1: Well,
4: just just I guess a, a brief one to uh, go back for a moment to uh, modern uh, modern monetary theory, which you mentioned. Um, this theory uh, that is uh, popular with some on the left, uh, and that some of us, like myself, who are not very far on the left at all, like to refer to uh, jokingly as. Um, uh, modern money tree economics um, <laughs> or mag- magic, or the magic mad money theory. Money <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah right. um, I, I just I would love to hear a, a sentence or two more about uh, kind of predicting what what things could look like uh, in, a, in a concrete way for people. Because, again, the problem is that we don't really feel this. It's similar, you know, to it's like a lobster in a pot of water that's slowly getting hotter or a frog in the boiling water and you kind of just think it's nice and warm and it's fine. And then before you know it, it's boiling and you're dead. So Sanders, for instance, um, Bernie Sanders, uh, I've read a good piece that tried to kind of tease out exactly how much spending he, he is really proposing if we enacted everything that he's promising. And the estimate came in at about $97 trillion over 10 years. If you added that, according to this analysis, um, to current government spending, that would drive the total cost of government up to about $184 trillion, or 70% of the projected GDP over 10 years. If we did that, I assume that magic money tree uh, theories would say that would be perfectly fine. You rooted more in uh, the world of reality. Uh, what what exactly is going to happen? Is there going to eventually be sky high inflation, hyperinflation? Uh, is, there, is there are we going to default on our debts? Is China going to come come for uh, payments and we're not going to be able to give them? What concretely for the non economists? What 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 would we see? if this is actually a real problem rather than an imaginary one, like the left likes to say.
1: Yeah. um, And there are many scenarios for how this could play out, and none of them are pleasant to think about. So first, we greatly benefit from being the safe haven currency, which means even if uh, the global economy is a disaster because of something we do, other countries and our central banks and our, our citizens still buy U.S. debt because we're considered the safest debt and the most stable country and economy in the world. There are questions for how long that will last, and there are other countries that would like to give us a run for our money. That means when we don't benefit from that anymore, we will not benefit from what we have right now, which is remarkably low interest rates in a time of large budget deficits. And I think that's the single fact that has called into question for the most people, wait a second, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you can just keep borrowing because interest rates haven't gone up. But if and when they do, and they do for many reasons, economic reasons, or just a loss of trust in the U.S.'s ability to... Um, be good stewards of their economy. We are so vulnerable, and the more we borrow, the more vulnerable we become. But right now, if we were to see interest rates go up by a single percentage point, that would increase our interest payments by almost $2 trillion over 10 years, the entire cost of a tax cut, the tax cut, for instance, one percentage point. And they're much, much lower than they have been historically. They could go up even more than that. So basically, we're so vulnerable, the way you are with a credit card teaser rate, and yet when you have people encouraging you to borrow more, that enhances increases your vulnerability. Um, as you also said, you could see skyrocketing inflation. Um, that could happen if you were if you're kind of turning to the printing press, which is part of the MMT theory. What you're not likely to see is default, because we, unlike other countries, we borrow in our own currency, and that's why, in some ways, it that coupled with being the safe haven has almost covered up how risky our fiscal policies are, and so it doesn't become a problem. But it's really like that saying about how how did you go bankrupt? Uh, first, I went bankrupt really. First, it was really slow, and then it was really fast. And I think this is a situation of a tipping point that is completely invisible. You don't know when you would hit it and what it would look like. But as soon as markets lose confidence, it's a bubble mentality. As soon as you see a run, then you would see things happen really, the deterioration would happen really quickly. And because we have this great advantage of being the safe haven, why can't we use that to our benefit to get our fiscal house in order while we have time and interest rates are low and it's not that painful and the answer is our political system is too broken to do any of these challenging policies right now
0: okay last question from me Um, we have a tremendous amount of trouble in this country doing anything that inflicts any kind of pain on any taxpayer Um, but what you're describing is a situation where if we don't get a handle on these out-of-control deficits, we, these automatic spending cuts in entitlements could, well, do you think they could cause social unrest or you know serious uh, social problems?
1: I think that our economy is not going to be growing as quickly in the future as it has in the past because of demographics, because of aging, and that we've already overpromised all our future resources. And I think the two of those things combined, without sounding hysterical, definitely are likely to lead to social unrest. This is going to be a very tough time. And no, we are not very good at saying to anybody, you need to pay more or take less. And frankly, our our imbalance is so large, both of those things are going to have to happen. Um, and I think about the, one of the reasons this issue is so tough is it's about hard choices. As we were just talking about politicians, people like making up easy solutions. But this one doesn't have easy solutions. We need more revenue and we need to control spending. We haven't done either of those. And until you find politicians who are willing to, we are going to face this real risk of it coming out in a really damaging way to our economy or our national security. Um, and I would just point out that since, since the president had enter, has entered office, uh, we have signed in, he has signed into legislation, Congress has passed, and the president has signed $4.7 trillion in new borrowing. So it's not just that people are ignoring the problems that we need to address, like Social Security and Medicare. It's that they are making it significantly worse. Over half of this year's budget deficit, half of that trillion dollars is self-imposed policies from the past couple of years since this president has been in office.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's twice as high as it was in the last year of the Obama administration, the deficit.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's when you put it on the backdrop of the strong economy that nobody would have imagined you'd have deficits this high right now. And you do need political leadership on this. You need people who are willing to talk about why it matters and lay out honestly what the choices are.
0: You know, Ross Perot was a bit of a nut, but he did do a service by He did. He put it on the people. agenda. Yeah, he
1: put it on the agenda. He forced it on the agenda when nobody else wanted to talk about it. And in fact, we had thought, so we do do a program, U.S. Budget Watch, where we'll score all the candidates' policy proposals throughout the election. We have a big report that just came out on health care. And if you look at the top four Democratic candidates, the range of what their health care proposals would do to the national debt is dramatic, where, where Pete Buttigieg's would actually save money overall to Bernie Sanders, which would increase the debt by 13 trillion dollars by the estimates, And there's numbers in between. Um, But it really matters if during the election you talk about being fiscally responsible because you need to build up an understanding of why it matters and a bit of a mandate. And if you don't have that kind of leadership, it is really tough to make the hard choices that, truth be told, are a part of fixing this problem.
4: Damon, I just quickly wanted to hear if Maya had something to say about what do you say to someone who's, you know, we've talked about uh, how all of this is happening, all this new debt and the deficits when the economy is doing so well. But what do you say to someone who says a major reason why the economy is doing so well is precisely because we're constantly stepping further on the gas by by piling on all of these tax cuts. So one reason why the last 2 years have been kind of gangbusters and and unemployment has gone down to the mid 3% range is precisely because we cut corporate taxes tremendously and all these businesses have are flush with cash. And they feel like they can now expand and hire more. So doesn't it kind of go both ways? If we if we had not had that tax cut, maybe we would be in a recession right now. I mean, yeah, I'm sort of ignorant about a lot of this stuff, so I am genuinely asking you that.
1: Totally fair question. Um, and I'd add to that tax cut part, there's also been two massive spending cuts. And in fact, a second huge tax cut, $500 billion in tax cuts in December that basically nobody noticed. So all of this is about stimulus spending when the economy is strong. And there are two ways that you can fuel an economy. You can increase productivity through investment and growth that will be lasting and sustained, or you can kind of have sugar rushes, which is what we're doing now. We're throwing stimulus or fuel on the fire when the economy is already strong enough. And if you keep doing that, it's not sustainable. It's a one-year shot or a two-year shot, but it doesn't last over time, which is what productivity increases do do. So that's why an economy that's driven by Saving investment productivity growth is one that lasts. An economy that's driven by short term stimulus spurts is one that ends up crashing. And so it might feel good right now, but it really hurts when we pay the price. And that price, again, is already being shown in interest payments, in a debt that's the highest it's ever been since World War II, and a huge bill that's going to be spent, it's given over to our children. So it feels good in the moment. A lot of things do that aren't good for you. I would say stimulus spending during expansion is one of them.
0: Well, thank you, Maya. Very, very informative and depressing, but uh, but we need to hear it. And um, I would I would just urge people to. Uh, to go to your website, uh, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where they can find find out more information. And do you have little links for where they can contact their congressman and that sort of thing? We
1: do at Fix the Debt, which is another okay. of our sort of our outside game where we will send notices saying, let your congressman know about this. They never hear from people saying we care about the debt. So no. even one call, one email saying you care about the debt can make a difference to members. Okay, terrific. Well, thank Thanks. you for joining us. Thanks for us. having me.
0: All right. Um, I want to thank Maya again for that Incredible, uh, cogent analysis. Um, All right. Well, it was a busy week, uh, very busy week. So much happened. But uh, I think we all want to plunge into our reactions to the impeachment trial. This week, I would say it really became quite um, engaging because the senators were asking questions of the House managers and the president's uh, lawyers. And, uh, and you could get a little bit of a feel for where the Senate is. So um, one thing that struck me, uh, there were so many, but I'll just throw this one out there, is that um, you know, they're talking about this elusive fourth Republican vote, f- possibly for witnesses, which, by the way, may be I- irrelevant in any case, since everybody already knows what the truth is. Witnesses are no witnesses. Um, so this may be a little bit of a, um, a red herring, but... It is interesting that when you looked at the questions that were posed, Richard Burr posed a question about Mick Mulvaney's admission in that famous press conference uh, about this being a quid pro quo, and uh, I don't know that people were necessarily expecting that. So I, you know, it was a little tickle saying perhaps that's a fourth vote. But anyway, Damon, what did you? Uh, what what struck you? Uh, I mean, any? I'm sure many things did, but start anywhere you like. Well, I mean all I can say is I, I I'm defeated. I'm ready to kind
4: of gather up my marbles and go home. Uh, you know, I when we f- we first started this podcast right as all of this was starting to come together, it was about a week or two after the revelations about Ukraine first broke in the news and then it became clear that the Democrats were going to pursue impeachment. And I was I was sort of willing to to give it a try and say yeah this sounds really bad what Trump did I can see those transcripts and it's pretty clear what he did and the president shouldn't do that and so I don't see how the Democrats can av- avoid trying to pull this off uh, but here we are and, and nothing is going to change anything uh, you know this the news this week about Bolton's book and the fact that he sounds like he would be ready to testify pretty brutally against trump uh and actually expand the the evidence base against him but uh, in the end i i guess my view coming out of all of it is that yes uh, trump is not going to be removed and in the end it doesn't really matter whether anyone testifies and including bolton and not only because it's not going to change the final vote but also because But we're going to find out what's in Bolton's book anyway. He's going to go on television, and he's going to tell us, and eventually the book will come out, and it's going to sell in the millions. And everybody's going to know, and they're going to know in time, uh, I trust, for the election, which is really how you get rid of a president and you know we've never removed a president directly through an impeachment vote and we're not going to now and uh this institution doesn't appear to function really exactly the way one would hope but uh you know that's a problem for another day so i guess i feel defeated but i sort of feel like in the end uh you know it's all everything that you would want to hear from a witness is going to come out probably before you know it in the in in the uh, regular to and fro of the media and the political process.
0: Sarah, one of the um, early lines from the Trump defenders was um, uh, that there were no direct witnesses linking uh, the uh, the halt of military aid to a desire for a quid pro quo. And then the news broke that Bolton had said exactly that in his book. And then the Republican line became we really don't need any more witnesses. Um, but, I, but, but do you have any, um, any insight perhaps into uh, why John Bolton doesn't just appear on Fox News or hold a press conference and say what he has to say? Why does he have to wait to be subpoenaed if he has relevant information? And by the way, the senators are not, contrary to what the president's attorneys have been saying, senators are not limited in their judgments by the the record before them that's been presented in the trial they it's not that kind of a trial they can bring their judgment they can form their judgments based on their worldly experience and anything else they choose so uh any insight into what bolton's up to here i mean I don't know anything more
3: than anybody else would, but uh, I suspect it has something to do with the drama around book sales and mm. um, and, and and probably some cross-pressuring uh, if he were to offer up too much. And I think it's better if he does it under oath as opposed to going on TV and doing it. But um, at this point where things are so precarious, and I have to disagree... Um, with Damon, I think I think witnesses matter tremendously. I think nothing is more important. I think this, you know, it, it it feels it feels like a foregone conclusion because we all know how far gone the Republicans are, how in the tank they are for Trump, and so it seems like an acquittal is inevitable. But that doesn't mean that it isn't super important for a firsthand witness like John Bolton, who has that level of credibility with Republicans, despite the fact that they're trying to smear him now, if he got up and said. The guy's lying. I heard it from his mouth, and you don't think that matters in some way? I think it and matters John tremendously. Kelly. And John, John Kelly, John Kelly comes out and defends <laughs> him. Like, and it, it's funny because one of the Fox News is sort of. St- um, standard criticisms for impeachment was not anything merit-based or any any of the substance. It was just, this is kind of a snooze. It's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> but it's super exciting right now. I mean, not to treat it like it's a basketball game, but we have a tie. <laughs> we sort of have a tie game right now. We've got, you know, two soft yeses for witnesses in, in Collins and Markowski. what I think is probably a hard yes for Mitt Romney for witnesses. And then, like, Lamar Alexander, Rob Portman. It uh, sounds like uh, Toomey's off the list now, but, you know, you don't know and then there's then there's the the chief justice potentially being a, a tie-breaking vote to bring in witnesses um and I, but i just i i can't emphasize enough how important it is and what a look the, the reason that we all think it's a foregone conclusion is because the political environment has stayed incredibly stable even though it feels so chaotic and the, the stability of it is the idea that basically nobody's going to really challenge trump but these republicans should have to in the face of full information with a firsthand witness saying, yeah, he did it. It was a quid pro quo from the start. They should have to vote to acquit him then. That is a big difference,
0: I think. Interesting. Um, so, Bill, um, one thing that's been driving me, I mean, I want to hear whatever it was you had planned to say next, but I but I want to introduce it by saying that one thing that I, I feel the Democrats have really screwed up, and uh, this includes uh, Joe Biden and his team, is that A rather important talking point that has real purchase with a lot of Republicans is this idea that Joe Biden was corrupt, that Joe Biden bragged about firing the prosecutor who was going after his son, and uh, that therefore the president was had a legitimate interest in pursuing that corruption. Now, leaving aside, I mean, there's no question that that Hunter Biden taking that post was skeevy and not not becoming. Um, but the rest of it is completely wrong, as far as I can tell, um, that uh, that Joe Biden uh, was pushing for the firing of a prosecutor, that everybody agreed was corrupt, that the EU agreed was corrupt, the United Nations. I mean, everybody wanted this this prosecutor fired. Plus, the prosecutor was not going after Burisma. That had been dropped the year before. Um, it was precisely because he was not battling corruption that Biden asked for him to be removed. Okay. So that's my understanding of the facts. And yet, neither the House managers, I didn't hear it all, but I I heard a lot of it, and I can't find where the House managers made this point. They keep saying that, well, the Bidens aren't the point. And I haven't heard it from Joe Biden. Uh, He has not made that full-throated defense. Why not? Well,
2: I'm... uh, I'm not sure the premise of your question is wrong, but I'm not sure it's right either.
0: Well, that's what I'm worried and about.
2: And that's, you know, and and you know, people people are saying things on the stump five times a day. Uh, I don't know what kind of arguments he's making on the stump. Do you? Now, is it the case, you know. Wait, can,
0: excuse me. Let me interrupt for one yeah. sec. His um, media person put out a Twitter uh, video yeah. where all these points are made. Okay, so it's his shop knows these facts and yeah. is putting them out in the most in ineff- uh, uh, ineffectual way possible. <laughs> look, look,
2: I haven't, I haven't seen this, uh, and I am not going. I am not going to contradict you. Okay, uh, but uh, i i honest I honestly don't think it's the main point uh, because. Uh, you know, I, and you know what I'm about to say, I think most people have already made up their minds about all of the questions that we've been discussing for weeks and all the questions that we haven't been discussing for weeks but could have. I mean, Sarah, Sarah referred a couple of minutes ago to the incredible stability of public opinion in the midst of this chaos. That is the single most respar- remarkable fact, and that is that the torrent of facts, factoids, and allegations has not moved the needle except in one respect. And this is where I think the Republicans, particularly Republican senators in tough races, may have a problem. Uh, There has been a steady uptick in the share of voters who are in favor of calling witnesses. And I've looked at the... I've looked at the five surveys done over the past 10 days on this issue, and about 58 percent of the voters, including 38 percent of Republicans, think that witnesses ought to be called. And only 28 percent are taking the other, the other side of that. And so I think that the, the votes that are likely to be taken on the calling of witnesses tomorrow will be quite important politically because Republican senators in tough races are going to have to answer for those votes. And I suspect that most of them are going to vote no, uh, and that's going to be a problem for them.
4: Can I just jump in and briefly say that I've seen all of those uh, poll results, and I would love to see an intensity measure. I'm just skeptical, and this is, I guess, anti-scientific of me, because this is based more on anecdotal information from people I know in different parts of the country. And I just don't believe very many people care very much, at least until a pollster calls them up and asks them. And if the pollster says, do you think they should call witnesses in the impeachment trial? They say, yeah, okay, yes, yeah, sure, that sounds fair. But do they spend any time in their day worrying or fretting about that? I I really don't believe that very many people do. Um, but, well,
0: okay. so I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I... yeah. Well, but when, okay, so uh, not but, but and, um, when you go through a a, um, national drama like this, um, there are consequences. And one of them is that the Republicans have found themselves in the position, they've argued themselves into the position now of basically agreeing with Donald Trump that, uh, and these are the arguments that he has made over the course of the last... uh, of the last three years, but also culminating in this, that he cannot be investigated. This is um, indebted to Greg Lukianov for putting these all together. He cannot even be investigated for any wrongdoing while he's president. This is something that he argued uh, uh, vis-a-vis the uh, efforts in New York State to get his tax returns and other things. And uh, he he said he argued that that, uh, his lawyers argued he was immune um, though ironically they also argued that in the event of, a, of an impeachment uh, move, this was a, a while back, uh, then the Congress would have the right to, uh, to request documents, but not, uh, not before. But of course now you also have the president arguing. He's saying, no, nope, can't be investigated. I have immunity while I'm in office from any uh, wrongdoing of, you know, that might be investigated by any jurisdiction. And then if the Congress investigates under an impeachment uh, scenario, he has the right to adamantly and comprehensively refuse to cooperate and to instruct all the offices of the federal government not to turn over documents, not to testify, and not to cooperate in any fashion. And so I guess the, the upshot is that we are now faced with one party that is comfortable arguing that the president is immune. There are no checks Yes, I mean, and I think our hair should
3: be on fire about this. You heard Alan Dershowitz argue it yesterday. Yeah. Essentially, this Nixon line that we've mocked for decades—the yeah. idea, well, if the president doesn't, if the president does it, then it's not a crime. Like, and and I, I Mona and I, who were both conservatives, we know that. Actually, our party used to be incredibly leery of widespread executive authority. You know, we didn't like it when people issued executive orders as a matter of uh, making policy. And we certainly didn't. Le- I mean, I- I've worked in the conservative movement my whole life. And if, if if I've worked on one transparency, government transparency project, I've worked on a thousand. It's something we're obsessed with. And to watch everybody put their head in the sand right now and act like and, 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 and not just not just the senators, because I think this is a, a cultural problem that I can't figure out is. Why people aren't just freaking out more at all of these? It's like everybody's kind of he's he's worn us down. Trump the Trump era has worn us down so much that we aren't so alarmed to hear this anymore. And I can't understand why because it is, uh,
0: it it is it is it is wild. It's crazy. Um, the, there are so many. Also, there are just so many contradictions. Okay, so one one um, uh, week. The, the president's position was, and those around him, was that, um, the, that the president cared about corruption in Ukraine. That's what this was about. He was terribly, terribly concerned about corruption in Ukraine, and that's why he was putting a halt on the aid. And, um, and also, at the same time, he said that he, he was concerned about burden sharing and that he wanted other countries to chip in and help Ukraine. And uh Pre-Barrara pointed out, you know, those two things are intention. I mean, really? You if you if you're saying that you don't want to, to forward the aid, which by the way you can't do under the Impoundment Act, but in, but leaving that aside Details, uh, details. Yeah, details. But but even if that were true, um the the, the then you're, also, you're arguing simultaneously that oh yes we need to get all of our allies to contribute to this terribly corrupt regime that's our policy i mean that no, makes but just to, no
2: t- sense t- turn that around what he's yeah. really saying is he doesn't care what other people do with their money well i <laughs> and, suppose uh, so uh, but but why you know i'm i'm astounded that you're astounded <laughs> right and this is one reason why i've been skeptical about this impeachment gambit from the from from the beginning the intense polarization of our partisan party system means that most people are not going to be moved by any of these outrageous propositions and unavoidable contradictions that you're all quite properly listing from the political standpoint, we have reached a point where they are beside the point. That's where we are based on the evidence. And we can talk about this on this podcast for the next 10 months. And unless the, Ameri- unless the American people, and in particular the you know, 90% of Republicans who fervently support this incumbent Republican president become sensitive to things that they are now you know, immune to, Uh, nothing's going to change.
0: Well, um, and Damon, jump in whenever you want to. Let me respond to that first, and then uh, feel free. Um, uh, The um, things do penetrate, though, when they get enough salience. And maybe it's just with a few people, but those might be the best people who are at least open to facts and evidence. the, there were so you know the republicans these days remind me very much of the communists in the 1930s and Isn't 40s It's not funny.
2: I was just making this point at lunch today <laughs> oh, precisely. Oh, oh. <laughs> Where you know they
0: followed the American Communist Party followed the Soviet line exactly and so they were you know, for if if Stalin was in a you know was, was anti-Nazi, they were anti-Nazi until the Nazi the Hitler-Stalin Pact was signed, in which case the next morning all the American communists were you know our friends, the the uh, the Germans. The 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 Republicans now are showing themselves to be acting in such bad faith that it does break through a little bit. So look at, you know, John Bolton has been a fixture of conservative, the conservative intellectual world, policy world now for 50 years or 40 years or whatever it is. Um, he was a paid contributor to Fox News, which is where most Trump fans get their news. It's very possible that some of the people who've watched him all, over these years have developed a level of trust in him and are going to have a little trouble making this sudden U-turn into being told, you know, the bat signal is up, right, from Lou Dobbs. John Bolton is now a creature of the left. There have got to be people who are saying, really, John Bolton, creature of the left, you know. And, and so I, I think they are, uh, maybe it won't be enough to show up in the polls, but it may be enough to affect and 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 just put a little little uh, brain worm in some people who will have their uh, their confidence. Comp-
4: well, I mean, I I, I I wrote a column earlier this week in which I try to have uh, in, for my sins a little fun with this bizarre uh, metamorphosis of Republicans, and I divided. Republicans into three categories, basically. You have the kind of the, at the worst, sorry, at the best, the least worst position, you have kind of situationalists. And I put uh, Mitt Romney in that category, someone who, who, I don't think would vote to uh, to convict uh, Trump, but wants witnesses clearly and really does care about what happened. Uh, He just will, in the end, say most likely, well, what he did was bad. And yet, it doesn't rise to the level of removing the president from office, and that's a respectable view. There were plenty of Democrats who said that about Bill Clinton. You know, yes, he perjured himself; he All shouldn't of them. have done that. <laughs> right, that's true. But but there were none that went beyond that. And what we now have is is two categories beyond that. In the middle, you have people like say Lindsey Graham who will who will actually say that uh, they they will actually. Uh, say that, yeah, Trump did this, But it's really not bad, even though they probably would have said it was bad, like, uh, you know, a week ago if someone else were accused of it. So they're kind of... No,
0: no, better. No, no. Lindsey Graham said, if you can show me evidence. This was right at the beginning that he did it, that would be bad. Then when they showed the evidence, he said, not bad. Right, exactly. So
4: that's the moral relativist (laughs) category, even though a lot of conservatives used to rail against moral relativists, moral relativism. Now we have people like Lindsey Graham who embrace it and evolve moment to moment. And then finally, you have the Lou Dobbs category, which is full reality warping distortion, where where you take someone like John Bolton, who kind of defines the core of hardline conservatism for for his entire life, and and overnight becomes a tool of the left, according to him, with lines drawn on the screen, on the TV, uh, like a conspiracy theorist. And so I think really this last category especially, and it isn't all Republicans, but that's kind of the outer fringe. This is really just politics as entertainment. This has nothing to do with the real world. This is people watching their TVs and kind of getting whipped up and and excited about the contest, which has nothing to do with the real world. I really do think it's a kind of tribute to kind of the, the transformation of politics in our country to just pro wrestling. Uh, it's the WWE.
0: Bill, you don't agree? Oh, uh, I'm gonna. Uh, you're sorry. gonna get some pushback, Damon, from from the Washington D.C. crowd. Go. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I certainly don't agree with that, and and I and I sort of don't agree. I don't agree with the um because first of all, this stuff does matter. There's a constitutional matter at the very heart of this entire thing. Not to mention whether or not truth itself matters anymore to people. But the thing that I would argue about. That it that it you know nothing matters anymore. I, I I know that we all feel that way because this has been just staggering to watch, um, the way that people do sort of ignore the facts right in front of their eyes. But I this idea that that no one could move or that everything's netable. So first of all, I don't think Mitt Romney's somebody who is definitely going to vote to acquit Trump. I certainly maybe maybe he'll get there. Maybe he'll he'll land on bad but not impeachable. But again, this is why something like witnesses could matter so much because let's say the difference between uh mitt romney susan collins and lisa murkowski voting to impeach would be the difference between a straight party line vote or a bipartisan majority voting to impeach yes he would still be let off but you would have a bipartisan majority voting to impeach so those are very different contexts so the 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 idea that there's a lot of things that are locked in but you can make i i still believe you can make change around the edges that is meaningful politically. The other thing is, is that I'm not sure that that I mean, the polling on for Cory Gardner and Joni Ernst um, and Susan. I mean, like it is moving and it is not looking great. I'm not sure that there's no political price to be paid Uh, for some of this.
2: I explicitly I explicitly said that if there's a political price to be paid, it's going to be it's going to show up in hard pressed Republican senators. I agree with that. Now, I I'm not going to go down the list of senators one by one reviewing their political situation. But with regard to Trump, you know, and I don't often say this, uh, I think the point is being missed. And it has nothing to do with moral relativism. The truth is that the different building blocks of the Republican Party have gotten what they wanted out of this president and this presidency you can go down you can go down the list from the religious conservatives to the regulation haters to the tax cutters you know and uh, you know and then of course you you know and the corporate sec- the the corporate sector has gotten everything could possibly have dreamed of and then you know and and then the working class populists who put them over the edge have gotten in spades what he promised them so you know, so what was
0: that? He promised them a return of manufacturing jobs. That hasn't d- developed at all.
2: Well, that's not true either. Uh, in fact, in fact, about five hundred thousand manufacturing jobs have been created during this period, which is only a small fraction of what's lost. Uh, but it's better than it's better than what was happening. He has given them the hardline immigration policy mm-hmm. that they wanted. He has given them the screw the allies foreign policy that they wanted. And most important of all, he has been absolutely unrepentant in attacking the people they hate, Mm -hmm. right? He has never backed off. They love the fact that the sorts of pressures for social conformity and political correctness that have reined in a lot of previous conservative leaders have no impact on him whatsoever. He is their dream come true. He is saying out loud what they've been thinking for two generations, but they felt with some justice that no one had the guts to articulate. They are thrilled. Why are we surprised?
4: Argue with me.
3: Well, yeah, I. Uh, yeah, so, so, yeah. Here is what I. Sounds know,
4: right to me. Yeah,
3: I know. Well, I think it, I think this is this is actually interesting. Um it, it, there's this idea, right? I think on the left, where they've always had the vision of the Republican Party that it was exactly Trump's party, yes. and I think that it comes as a shock to uh, sort of institutionalist conservatives who. Thought of conservatism in an entirely different different way. Thought it had lots to do with character and about fidelity to the Constitution and about limiting government. Um, and we weren't actually in it to own the libs. Um, and it didn't come from a place, I think, of of sort of a, a cultural hatred for for different groups. And I mean, look, the, the Republican Party that I came up in um, certainly under George W. Bush was was very. Uh, pro-immigrant. I mean, Reagan, hW, these were these were all people who talked uh, warmly about and it, it, with it with great cultural affection for for immigrants. And so I, I, I think I will admit to some naivete about what was an undercurrent in the party. I mean, I think Charlie Sykes sometimes talks about it as a there was a it was there. There was always this sort of recessive gene um, that was in the party that has now sub, now now has become the dominant gene. Um and and I think there's there's something close to to right about that. Um, but I think it's I think I think it's wrong to say that be, because the way that you said it just made it sound like all of the right is okay with this. I mean, college educated Republican women are walking away from this party so fast. Uh, it's why 40 seats got flipped in the house. Um, I I think that they are uh, shrinking. they are relying entirely on, a voting block of non-educated white men, which is not a growth demographic, and I think this is um, political suicide that they're committing in slow motion. And I feel like the idea that we all just sort of tolerate it and, uh, and say and, 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 and excuse it or make rationalizations for it, like I just think we should be fighting it with everything we have all the time.
2: I'm not arguing with that, but let me just put a question on the table that we can revisit in 10 months. Okay. This is, and it's not my job, but you know, I think Sarah, Mona, it's quite right. You're, it's, it's yours. What is your current estimate of the share of the Republican Party that will cast its ballot for Donald Trump in November?
3: It depends on who the Democrat is. And this is, and this is, I'll put it back on you. This is, this is part of the problem. Those women who walked away and voted for Abigail Spanberger and Mikey Sherrill and uh, and Alyssa Slotkin, I don't know that they vote for Bernie Sanders. Oh, and, I know. Th- I'm pretty sure they won't. Well, so, actually, I, I'm pretty sure they won't, too. In fact, and I, I do focus groups with these people all the time, and they won't. And so we've got this this uh, this this problem with the extremes on the left that are also, that, that is part of what's going on well, here. Here's,
2: here's the good news. It's good news for me, and I think it may also be good news for you. Assume for, ex- for a moment that the nominee of the Democratic Party is Joe Biden. Yes. Okay? Under that assumption, What is your prediction about the share of Republicans who will break ranks with this egregious president and support
0: Joe Biden?
3: I think it is a tipping point majority in places like Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, potentially Arizona.
0: Ten percent.
3: Yeah, that's about right.
2: Well, that's not hugely more than the percentage that broke ranks in 2016. A little more. A little more, exactly. Exactly. Is that commensurate with the added information that they've gotten
0: about this man in the past <laughs> four years? Well, it doesn't matter, though, does it for the for the results in the election? Right. All you need is a few more. Well, that is true, but let me.
2: Uh, I'm sorry to be so argumentative. No, is good, yeah, it's it's good. Bunch, this good. This is know, the
3: right conversation to have. But,
2: but Egg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it looks to me as though this is going to be a close election. Okay. That is an astounding fact about the current state of American politics, that this is going to be a close election. And it's going to be a close election because the strength of partisan antipathy is so powerful in contemporary politics that it will restrain people who know better from breaking ranks.
0: Well, you're talking about the uh, the Republicans and their willingness to vote for this heinous character called Trump, but uh, but you're not letting off the Democrats, are you, for no, con- I, contemplating absolutely Bernie not, Sanders? But I will.
2: But I will say this: when my party nominated George McGovern, the result. Was a landslide in the good old days when the Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater, the result was a landslide. That's true. Now the Republicans not only nominated but renominated Donald Trump, and where is the bleeping landslide?
3: I I think there would be. So I think there would be an Electoral College landslide if it was Joe Biden. I think I think Bernie Sanders loses. I think Elizabeth Warren probably loses, Uh, but I think that uh, Joe Biden. Would would win an electoral college landslide. Well, if there is a I'm benign,
2: sure. if there is a benign and loving God, we'll get a chance to test this proposition.
0: <laughs> I, I I am not sure of anything. I mean, it, it, in the old days, if this were 1992 or you know 2002, I would have said, of course, Bernie Sanders could never be elected president. I do not say that anymore. Uh, you know he. The, the 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 BS that he is peddling uh, is very attractive. But, you know, more free stuff, don't pay for anything, tastes great, less filling. Um, <laughs> and you know, we the, the Republicans bought it uh, in the form of uh, of Trumpism, and the Democrats are a a significant percentage of the Democrats are eating it up. If enough of them are able to put him over the top in Iowa and New Hampshire, I believe that he will win the nomination. And uh, because the, the momentum will be crushing, and I have a little bit less confidence in Biden, partly for, because of the reasons I discussed earlier. I don't think that he has gotten on top of things the way he had the op- every opportunity to do. Um, I hope he's the nominee, but, uh, but uh, as I say, I'm concerned. Um, and then you would see, don't you think, just as you saw in the Republican Party, you would see all of these Democrats saying, well, of course, Bernie Sanders wasn't my first choice, but as against the Republicans, of course, I will vote for Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, how many Democrats do you imagine would sit out that election and vote third party or whatever and refuse to vote for Bernie Sanders? What percentage would you say?
4: I, I, uh, can I jump in? And yeah. I, I, I think... I, I don't know the answer, of course. Uh, no one does. But I do think that it's it's a little more uncertain than it is for the Republican side. I do think the Re- the Democratic Party is more deeply divided. Uh, and Ezra Klein has a new book about polarization that talks about this. Lots of other people have, have looked at the data. I mean, this is a party where you have Bernie Sanders on the left flank and on the right flank, uh, Mike Bloomberg, who's effectively a liberal Republican. I said something like that a couple of the podcasts ago. That's a huge, huge spread. And I I don't think it's as easy to imagine the people who are tempted by and are now giving Bloomberg around 8% Uh, In polls, despite the fact that he hasn't appeared on a debate stage at all, all because of these commercials that he's running, uh, that if you have a party in which 8% are willing to entertain a Michael Bloomberg and then another like 25% who really like Joe Biden, and then you have another 25% that love Bernie Sanders and really only want to vote for him, you do have a situation where you have a kind of a bimodal distribution of voters and could they be wrapped up into one ball for the few you know weeks leading up to the election so that they turn out and vote probably but i i don't know if if they can be wrapped up quite as tightly as say 90% democrats voting uh in the way that you can assume 90% or more uh consistency on the republican side so uh, the Democrats are in a tough a tough place in, in this regard, I
0: think. Well, we shall see. Uh, the uh, Iowa caucuses are on Monday night, um, and uh, so we'll have some more information the next time we gather. I had thought that on this podcast we were going to get to the Middle East peace plan. Um <laughs> If, if anybody has anything pressing to say about it, we can, we can do that. Um, uh, well, Jared solved it, right? Because he'd read a few books on it, so now it's solved. Well, why don't we talk about it for just a minute? Um, because it gives me an opportunity to say something non-completely hostile to the Trump team, which is unusual for me. But uh, look, the way this was done was obviously— um, inept. Uh, You don't attempt a deal by just imposing one side's preferred solution and saying take it or leave it, which is basically what this was. On the other hand, um, the world has changed a great deal and the Palestinians, uh, you know, in the last 20 years the the Arab world has been riven by many problems that have led a lot of the Sunni countries to decide they have a lot bigger problems uh, than Israel. And, uh, and so their support for the Palestinian cause has pretty much dried up. Um, and this specifically refers to Saudi Arabia, which has behind the scenes actually become quite close to Israel over the last few years. Um, in fact, too close in some, in to, for some of our comfort. But in any event, um, you could say that, that if the Palestinians were smart— um, that they would take this deal because at least it gives them something. And the way things are going, it looks like they may end up with nothing. And um, if you recall in 1947, uh, when the United Nations partitioned the British mandate, they they gave they partitioned the region into two states, one for the Arabs, one for the Jews. They gave the Jews Tel Aviv, Haifa, um, you know, the Negev Desert, you know, and a few other little towns, and they gave the Arabs most of the best places. And the Jews said, fine, we'll take it. And the Arabs said
2: no. Well, the late the and, late Abba Iban yes. famously said that the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Yeah. Here is but here's the bottom line, I think, on this peace plan. This administration has ignored egregious misdeeds by the Saudis, truly egregious, in the name of linking them into a tight coalition with the United States, which would then enable us working through the Saudis to put pressure on the Palestinians. Well, and also to be against Iran. Okay. But but with regard to what we're talking about right now, if you want to know why Yasser Arafat didn't come close to signing on the dotted line at Camp David? at the end of the Clinton administration, and he was very frank about this. He said that without Saudi support, there's no way that I can, they will kill me, mm-hmm. quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is nothing that this administration can do to purchase Saudi support that it has not done. Will the Saudis deliver? Their, their first initial statement in response to the peace plan is charitably described as lukewarm,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right?
2: And the reaction from a number of other Arab states that are very dependent on us, on us including the Jordanians, was frigid. Okay? The Gulf states, for reasons of their own, made happier noises. But if the Saudis aren't on board with this, not just in a wishy-washy way, but pushing the Palata- Palestinians in this direction, it ain't gonna happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so the question is, have they snookered us? Have mm-hmm. they gotten an alliance in return for an expectation of performance when it counts, and they have no intention of delivering on that expectation.
0: Well, remember what Trump said about uh, about Obama with Iran, which was actually accurate. But uh, he said he gave away, you know, so much, and he got nothing in return from Iran. Um, it wasn't completely true, but it was largely true. And uh, it's hard to see much of a difference between that and this uh, vis-a-vis. The Saudis uh, giving away the, a lot.
2: Since at the end of the program, I will let that stand. <laughs> That's
0: the only reason. Okay. <laughs> Damon, did you have anything before we wrap up?
4: Not really. Okay. I mean, all, I, all I would say is that the, the deal is is a deal for Israel. Um, yeah. It it it's, it gave Israel, especially the the kind of Likud part of Israel, exactly what it wanted. But that's... it's also it's also enough for Gantz and and the Blue and White uh, agenda, showing where the Israeli center is now, and that's fine for them. But but as you started uh, saying right at the beginning, uh, you know you don't you don't actually enforce and impose a, a deal on only one side if you want it to work.
0: Yeah. Or yeah. Okay. Final thoughts. Uh, did you want to, uh, draw attention to something this week that you either agreed or disagreed with or just thought needed more attention? Uh, Bill? To tell
2: you the truth, no. Okay.
0: That's <laughs> fine. No worries. <laughs> We're a very, very calm podcast that doesn't impose high standards. Um, what about you, Sarah?
3: Um, I, I, I I didn't come in here with anything prepared. I forgot that you do this last question, but I will just say that I am, um, if you can't tell by the um, freneticness of my body language and the splenetic tone of my voice, um, I am in a uh, 10 alarm fire over a a lot of things. One is this idea of witnesses, but the other is this idea that Bernie Sanders could very well, uh, next time you host this podcast, have come out of Iowa um, as as the nominee. And so there's... Uh, I, I just—this is a real low point, um, and I'm hoping things turn around either tomorrow or Saturday, and we do get enough Republicans to vote for witnesses, um, and that the Democrats uh, get control of themselves here and, and find a way to uh, blunt some of what what is starting to look like runaway progress for Bernie
0: Sanders. Yeah, message to Democrats, don't do what we did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, well, my my. I just wanted to mention um, that uh, something that's bothered me for decades, which is the doomsday clock of the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They've moved up the, uh, the the doomsday clock to 100 seconds before midnight. This is a shtick that they've had going for many years, where it started with a bunch of uh, yeah, nuclear scientists in 1947, kind of warning of the danger of nuclear conflagration, and... Um, but it was inevitably; it, it became very politicized. It became, and first of all, you know, atomic scientists can warn you about the dangers of nuclear weapons, I suppose, and they and scientists in general have something to contribute on some subjects. But when they get into politics, they have no more wisdom, no more judgment than anybody else, and so they really should not um, sort of lean on their scientific credentials to tell us how panicked we should be about various things. And they always urged panic upon us in the West um, for uh, not engaging in arms control agreements, for example, or for building up our side. So when Ronald Reagan put uh, intermediate-range missiles in Europe to counter a move that the Soviets had made, the people at the doomsday clock turned it closer to midnight, and they were always encouraging us to, uh, to panic um, about these things. And now... Their big thing is, yes, there's a danger of nuclear conflagration, but there is also the danger of climate change. Well, climate change is a long-term problem that is going to be plaguing the planet for decades and possibly centuries, and it isn't the sort of thing where you could say it's 100 seconds to midnight. Uh, Even under the, I mean, yes, we should be concerned about it, but even under the most uh, dire Predictions—the serious consequences are a good many years off. So, I, well, right. And uh, but I do think that uh, I do think the doomsday clock, uh, if it ever had a purpose, uh, should be retired.
4: Uh, I, I I agree with that, and I actually do have something to share. Oh, good. Um, uh, and it, but it isn't something new. It, it's this piece that I've referred to a few times on on the podcast uh, that kind of tries to parse out the cost of Sanders' proposals? What would they actually cost? Because he, he's kind of famous for not putting price tags on things. And I've referred to the figure $97 trillion over 10 years a few times, so I figured it would be useful for listeners to hear where I'm getting this. It's a piece by Brian Riedel. Oh yeah, he's great. I, uh, R-I-E-D-L uh, from City Journal, uh, published October 15th, 2019, a piece titled The Unaffordable Candidate. Uh, lots of good numbers in there. If you really want to dig in and see exactly what it would cost to elect Bernie Sanders as president,
0: you know, I mean, when you if if you go shopping for a car or a house and somebody shows you a Rolls Royce or a you know twenty million dollar mansion, you say really looks nice, can't afford it. But when you're shopping for a politician and they promise you the equivalent, you say, he's my guy. He's he's bold. <laughs> he's so authentic. He's authentic. He's, he's serious. Yeah. Oh. Okay, friends. Thank you all. See you next week.